When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we look at pop culture and we examine history, philosophy, mythology, and the roots of all of the things that we love. As always, I'm very excited to be here to bring this episode to you. I want to kick this conversation off with a question, and the question is one that I have personally had to deal with, and I think others have as well, and... I think storytelling will offer a really great lens into the answer. And that is, what do you do when you are surrounded by true greatness? Greatness that is unapologetic, that shines like the sun, and here you are just in its light, or does the light give you sunburn? I think it's an important question as we approach the theme of this week's episode and the subject matter. We wanted to talk about sidekicks, the companion to the hero, the person that the hero relies on and counts on, and what the sidekick brings to storytelling writ large. So there were a lot of different ways that we could approach this, and we landed on wanting to examine a particular sidekick as a way to open the lens to the broader theme of what it means to be a sidekick uh, across multiple genres of storytelling. So we wanted to talk about Dr. Watson. Watson, as many of us know, is the companion to Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes has tons of adaptations. So in order to ground it in something contemporary, we're going to be really discussing Martin Freeman's uh, Watson in the BBC show Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock. So... um, I'm excited to do this. Yeah, I'm really excited to do this as well. As Derek said, we jumped in with uh, with this one particular character in mind as Dr. John Watson, the kind of quintessential sidekick, a character who is always right there at the side of the hero who is so blindingly great that everybody knows it. And Watson sometimes falls by the wayside in terms of glory or grandeur, 
but is no less important in the storytelling. And just like you said, Sherlock Holmes has been adapted so many times, you can almost lose count. There are more than 70 actors who have played that role and more than 200 film, TV, radio adaptations of those stories. But at his side, every single time without fail is John Watson. And so we want to throw some of the light and some of the glory on Watson this episode as we dig into some different portrayals and what they have brought to the surface, and especially this most recent adaptation in BBC's Sherlock with John Watson played by the magnificent Martin Freeman and what he really tells us about that character and what we can learn about ourselves in a situation like that. I love the question that you opened with because I think we can all look at situations in our lives where maybe we have been uh, you know, in a circumstance with a coworker who outperforms us or a classmate or even a sibling who gets a little more attention because they're so talented at this and maybe you wish you were, but you fall short. And where do we reconcile our hopes and our dreams and our epic stories about superheroes and battles and adventures with what we've truly been given and what's on our plate. And that's kind of our, our way into the stories of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson tonight. Before we jump in, if you want to join in the conversation about sidekicks, heroes, Watson and Holmes, we are here for you on social media. You can tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. You can visit us on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast and on Facebook. We also have a website, www.midnightmyth.com, where you can drop us a line and read our blogs. And if you are so inclined and haven't hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasting app yet, please go ahead and do that and leave us a rating or a review if you have a moment, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it helps us reach a greater audience and grow that conversation even further. So, so how this episode will work. We are going to be focusing in on one particular episode of BBC's The Sherlock. Now, all portrayals of Watson are on the table. Um, all The whole series is on the table, but we're going to hone in primarily with Dr. Watson vis-a-vis Season 1, Episode 1, A Study in Pink. So consider this your spoiler wall. The good thing about Sherlock is all four seasons are currently on Netflix. So log into Netflix, log into your friend's Netflix, Watch this episode and then come back to us. Um, We don't want to ruin anything because there will be surprises. And also, Sherlock is just delightful, so do yourself a favor and watch it first. And it's fun to unravel the mystery alongside the great detective, I think. So, a few nuts and bolts. This the show, the episode A Study in Pink, it aired in the BBC October 24th, 2010. So it's uh, almost eight years ago that this occurred. It was written by Stephen Moffat, who you may recognize that name, some of you out there, because he also is a major writer and creative force behind many seasons of Doctor Who that is also on the BBC. It was directed by a guy named Paul McGuin, or McGeegan, I might not be saying it right. Something like that. Um, But he directed, this is one of four episodes that he himself directed. Two were in season one and two were in season two. And... um, It's essentially, in a nutshell, it's the story of how Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes meet. There is a mystery. There is a serial killer who is uh, forcing people to drink poison that Sherlock and Watson need to unravel. And at the end of it, 
we realize that uh, Watson and Sherlock are now friends and partners, and they're going to be fighting crime together. And roommates. They introduce the name Moriarty. We meet uh, who is Sherlock's ultimate nemesis. He is the Joker to Batman um, in the Sherlock Holmes universe. And we meet Minecraft, um, Sherlock's brother, who is also high-ranking government official and kind of an enemy, frenemy of Sherlock's. We meet a revolving cast of characters like Mrs. Hudson, the landlady of 221B Baker Street, which is the beloved and iconic home of uh, Watson and Holmes. We also meet Inspector Lestrade, who is uh, who is there at the, uh, 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 I don't know, the London police. What are they called? They're called the London the police. The London police. <laughs> I think they're just called the London he's police. A, he's a Bobby. He's, you know, he's one cop. of those guys. He's, he's a, a cop. He's a Top-ranking, dete- his, his actual title in the show is Detective Inspector. Detective Inspector Lestrade, who's been in every iteration of Sherlock Holmes as a minor opposing force because Sherlock can't stand the actual police because they are so below him intellectually. We also meet some of the other uh, other cops and forensics people, and we meet Molly, who is desperately crushing on Sherlock. And so many of the characters who revolve around his circle and can't stand him or can't stand to be without him. Well, the main purpose of season one, episode one, is to really world build. And one of the amazing things that a sidekick gives us the ability as a sort of audience member stand in. So as we are getting to know Sherlock, so is Watson. So most of this episode is from Watson's point of view, where he is the main protagonist. The very first scene starts with Watson waking up from a nightmare with a war flashback, The very first few minutes are all just about Watson and what he's going through. We get the sense that he is a broken man. He's walking with a cane. He's seeing a therapist. He's trying to write a blog. We see shots of his room. His room is dark green and gray in color, camouflaged almost like the military uniform he so misses and longs for. And there's nothing really in his room other than a gun, a lamp, and a bed and a desk with a computer that just blinks with empty pages that he can't seem to write. And Watson is our POV character, like you just introduced there. And that's not new to this iteration of Watson and Holmes. That is back to the source material written by Arthur Conan Doyle. Watson is Holmes's biographer in the original stories, and he sits and writes journals about the adventures that they go on together. In this updated version... In uh, you know contemporary London, Watson has a blog, and Watson will eventually appropriate that blog to tell about the stories and adventures he goes on with Sherlock Holmes. But he's the first character that we meet, and he is just as you said that aud- that audience surrogate. He is if you're looking at a grand painting of a bunch of people maybe having a feast or a, a coronation. There's always one character. They might be totally insignificant to the rest of the powerful people in the painting, but they're looking straight at you. And when you make eye contact with that character and you uh, sort of put yourself in their shoes, then you're in the world that you never could have stepped in yourself. And Watson does that for us. We enter through his flashbacks of war. He's an Afghan war veteran, just as Watson was in the original stories. And he's trying to assimilate after coming back. He is detached, and he needs something to hold him back to reality now that he's in London again for the first time after fighting a war. Yeah, and when he meets Sherlock, simply by chance, he bumps into an old friend, and through that having a conversation, 
he tells his old friend he can't really afford to live alone because he doesn't have enough money on his army pension. His friend's like, hmm, I know someone that might work as a roommate, and that would be Sherlock Holmes, because Sherlock is at that lab where the friend works doing experiments on a cadaver by beating the cadaver mercilessly. It's quite a meat cute. Watson says something like, who'd want me for a flatmate? And his friend says, funny, you're the second person who said that to me today. So they're set up as kind of soulmates, as flatmates. They're two sides of the same who'd want me for a flatmate coin. And as different as they may seem, they're both people who need someone and can't find that someone. Well, and to me, this will go with the first function of the sidekick. Yeah. Uh, which I think is narrative explanation. And I think we see that in almost every iteration where we first meet a sidekick who gets to meet the hero, that we get to learn who the hero is as the sidekick meets. Him. Absolutely. So uh, Sherlock meets Watson and instantly psychoanalyzes him and tells his like past five years. Watson, unlike most people who are offended and put off by this, because it is a really obnoxious behavior, Watson sees the genius. He sees how intelligent Sherlock is, and instead of being angry, is curious. Yeah. He needs to know, how does Sherlock know these things? And that gives us, the audience, the ability to learn, how does Sherlock's quote-unquote superpower? Yeah. Even though he's not a superhero in the Superman sense. It is a supernatural intelligence. Absolutely. His power of deduction is on a level that is unbetold or unknown, never seen before, so his detection and deduction abilities get explained to Watson, which is the way to explain it to us. And right there, check, world building. But the show's even cleverer than that because Watson, if we read this first show, the first episode as Watson's story and not Sherlock's, he has a problem. He has a problem that he needs and that he needs to be removed, symbolized beautifully in the cane. He needs to have a life that has excitement and danger in it. Otherwise, he feels he is meaningless. Otherwise, he is psychosomatically causing pain in his body. Um, he's causing, he gets hand tremors. He can't think, he can't do anything because he's a man of action in a time of peace who needs to be back on these quote-unquote symbolic battlefield. Yeah. And the entire you know, story arc of Watson is to give up the cane. But he's not smart enough or clever enough to do this on his own. He needs someone to essentially take the cane from him and give him a reason to run. And that is Sherlock. There's an amazing scene between uh, Watson and Mycroft when they first meet. And Mycroft is being set up as this great villain. They don't give us his name right away. And so those of us who are familiar with the mythology, familiar with the stories and adaptations are immediately going to think that this is Moriarty, the great arch nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. But as he meets John Watson, he notices something kind of remarkable about him. And he's exhibiting similar uh, detective tendencies to, uh, to Sherlock in this moment. But he notices that Watson's hand, which was tremoring, no longer tremors. It's perfectly still. And from this, he draws the conclusion that Watson doesn't have PTSD like his therapist might think. Watson isn't suffering from this kind of mental disorder at, uh, at all of the horrors that he saw during war. He says to Watson, you're not haunted by the war. You miss it. And Watson has to be this kind of dauntless, fearless figure in order to 
uh, rub shoulders with Holmes, right? He has to be incredibly brave. Uh, and to call out that fact that he's not he's not suffering from uh, from some kind of uh, some disorder at what he saw, he's actually seeking it out again, is calling out something very unique in Watson that makes him the only person who can rub shoulders with Holmes, right? Totally agree with you there, yeah. I think that is a very revealing scene, and to Moffat's credit as written, total misdirection thinking Minecraft is actually the villain of the, yeah. sh- of the show. It turns out it's, his, it's just Sherlock's brother, um, but it another tell- kind of antagonist, yeah, absolutely. But it does tell us more about Watson, and and we see that also in another part where you know um, Sherlock and Watson they're just looking at the flat for the first time. It's a little bit before that scene, and the fourth murder just happened. The woman in pink mm-hmm. committed commits suicide, maybe got murdered, and the police show up, and for whatever reason, Sherlock he's about to leave, and then he comes back and goes. You've been to war? Watson's like, yep. You've seen a lot of things? Watson's like, yep. You want to see some more? And Watson's like, oh, God, yes. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And he's just like, can't wait to go with Sherlock. No idea what it is. No idea if it's dangerous. No idea if this is right or wrong. Have he just met him? But he's willing to follow him right into this. And um, we see that aspect of Watson again, craving the danger and the excitement uh, wanting to be back on the the battlefield, so to speak, in that moment there, and then flash forward to the scene you just described, mm-hmm. in which then Minecraft really nails it. It's like, yeah, you're suffering because you want to be back in the war. Yeah. So we set up this kind of, uh, this element where Watson, as our POV character, as the as the intrepid hero going into this narrative, needs someone like Sherlock in order to unlock his potential, to take away his cane and help him run. But Sherlock, the traditional hero of this narrative, the character whose name is in the title, also needs Watson more than he can possibly know. Uh, He says in that scene where they're about to take off to meet the police and the woman in pink, he says something like, I need an assistant. Even though we have seen him be incredibly misanthropic to everybody else that he knows and can't imagine him working with someone else. And that's when he asks Watson to come with him and says, do you want to come see some more dead bodies? Uh, So Watson becomes kind of his translator to the rest of the world. Sherlock is surrounded by these other side characters we talked about before, like Lestrade and Mrs. Hudson and Molly and uh, Anderson and the forensics teams, but they generally work at cross-purposes with Holmes. They still have to fall in his orbit, whether they like it or not, but he can't find value in any of them, despite the expertise and skills that they have. He chooses Watson, which tips us off to see Watson as extraordinary. Even though Holmes would never, ever admit it, he sees something extraordinary in this character that outpaces everyone who's ever fallen in his orbit before and says, I need that assistant. I think that's a good point. And I think that segues into, you know, establishing narrative world building as one function of the sidekick in the story. There's another function and particular works in Sherlock, which is humanizing the hero. Yes. So because Sherlock cares about Watson, we as viewers know, even though he says I'm a high functioning sociopath, we know he's a good guy. 
We know that he won't actually orchestrate a murder just to solve it as Sergeant Donovan is fearful and warns Watson. The fact that he sees something in John Watson and that we see that thing in John Watson too, that we see the both the brain and the heart of a great detective duo, the brain being Sherlock, the heart being Watson. Yeah. And the fact that Sherlock has just enough emotional intelligence to realize he needs this too, not just both pragmatically so that he can keep the flat and afford it, but also that he needs to bring him on this adventure shows to us, Hey, Sherlock is a human being and yeah, he might be supernaturally smart and he might be a ruthless, ruthless dick to everybody (laughs) all the time. There's one person that he actually cares about and there's one person that he wants to share a meal with. There's one person that can actually make him laugh at the end of a terrible traumatic fight with a supervillain. And that's Watson. And he sees value in that humanizing us to Sherlock, making us want to root for Sherlock more. Yes. And the perfect sidekick has to give the hero what they don't have. Right. So we can't have a sidekick who is a carbon copy of the hero. We can't have two people who are so similar and get along all the time. There has to be something oppositional, even if those those uh, strengths and weaknesses fill each other in, which in this case it absolutely does. Sherlock comes out and says in this iteration that he's a high-functioning sociopath, and no other adaptation has ever come out and said that, but it's often hinted that he is detached from human interaction, he's disinterested in romance and close relationships, and he's misanthropic. He doesn't like other people very much, and that lends to his ability to deduce and lends to his ability to observe without too much attachment. But Watson fills in the emotional intelligence, fills in the gaps in his genius. And that comes back to the Mori or, or the Mycroft scene um, for me where he's being uh, mis- misleadingly uh, uh, cast as Moriarty in this. But he asks Watson to keep an eye on Sherlock and pass him information for a large sum of money. And to someone with less emotional intelligence, to someone more like Sherlock Holmes, they might have taken the money and been like, yeah, I'll totally just pass you a little bit of information. What harm can it do? But we have this clear demonstration of incredible fortitude, loyalty, and love in Watson, who knows about brotherhood from the war and who knows about moral courage. And that's internal to him, even though he knows barely anything about Sherlock Holmes. He's like, I'm not going to betray this guy who could potentially be my friend. And Mycroft uh, kind of implies that he's a very loyal character and Watson denies it. But loyalty is absolutely his greatest strength. It's, it's what Watson is. It's who Watson is, is loyalty. Um, but that's all demonstrated right there. Any other character in that situation might have made a different choice, but we know who Watson is, and he is directly in opposition to what Sherlock is, but that makes both of them stronger. And one thing that in that moment where Minecraft tries to pressure Watson um, into becoming a spy for Minecraft, the one thing that it also demonstrates that both Sherlock and he, he being Watson, share is they're not going to be intimidated by anyone. Right. Just because you can control the security cameras and you know my movements and you know everything about me, that doesn't mean I'm going to bow down to you just because you're trying to put on this big show 
just to scare me. Like Watson says, you know, I had a phone. It's the first thing he says. You could have just called me. You didn't have to do any of this. And Watson was calm and he was not intimidated. And that shows that coupled with his sense of loyalty and duty and love for Sherlock and the fearlessness that he has, that he is going to be a formidable uh, sidekick on the battlefield with Sherlock. Even though these are battles in the traditional sense, we get the the very we get the notion at the end of that episode that Sherlock has been playing a masterful game of chess with an unknown player, and that London is the field by which this game is happening. And we are enticed to know who is this Moriarty, who is he really playing this game with, and we know from that scene that Watson will be with him through the end. Yeah. And I think that also is a really just smart, smart way to have both advancing the character Watson, telling us more about it, doing exposition about the world that also helps us learn more and care more about all of the characters, whether they be good or bad. Also signaling in a really respectful and clever way the Easter eggs that we've been looking out for if we're familiar with Sherlock Holmes. So we're waiting for Moriarty to appear, and instead of handing him right to us, it's teased, and it's it's handed out in a way that sets up the characters who are most important first, like Sherlock and Watson, and gives us a, a template for how they will react when in uh, in battle with the the real monster, but does so in a way that's clever and reveals a. Uh, a misdirection and a mystery just like Sherlock would have to solve. Right. I also think uh, something that's remarkable about Watson that he also demonstrates in that particular scene but is setting up for uh, his entire arc throughout the series is the level of comfort that he has with his status as a sidekick. In any other narrative, Watson would be the hero of it, wouldn't he? So if you think about the original Watson who set up, he's the archetypal Victorian gentleman. He is well-off, intelligent, a war hero, and that's the same thing in this iteration, too. He's not well-off in this iteration. No, right? but he is a, he's a war veteran, and he is intelligent, he's kind, he's loyal, he has friends, he has family, He he's brave and can rush into battle and sharpshoot. Like, this guy would be the hero of any other story. But he knows he's not the hero of the story that he's in. And he doesn't exhibit any, like, jealousy or ill will towards Sherlock because of that. He is fascinated by this person and amazed by them and is perfectly comfortable playing literally second fiddle because Sherlock plays the violin. Um, Whereas Sherlock, who is the hero, whose name is in the title is the character who's most self-conscious, who is a drug addict and who is insecure and who will risk their life just to prove how smart they are. A character like Watson, who is comfortable where he is, doesn't have to fear that kind of thing. And there is a lot to be admired in being at peace with what you've been handed, with the circumstances that you were born into or the circumstances that you uh, have risen into, rather than uh, passing judgment or hating those who have done better than you. It's a really interesting uh, character trait that he has. You are 
kind of dancing onto what I wanted to have as my concluding thoughts about this episode. Oh, but, wow. But that's fine. But no, I think it opens up a, a lot of conversation. I think there's so much to say about that. Absolutely. But let's, let, let's talk about it. Because what is, to me, the ultimate lesson of the sidekick that we can learn through season one, episode one of Sherlock and Watson? And that is, to me, don't be Salieri. So yeah. what do I mean by that? Because some of you might be confused. Who the fuck is Salieri? He's is not he even friends with Moriarty? He's not anything to do with it. Salieri is a character in the movie Amadeus. And in the movie Amadeus, Salieri wants to be the mouthpiece of the divine. He wants to express the glory of God through music. But then he meets Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who is actually the voice of God in music, at least from Salieri's eyes. And he feels that the universe has cheated him. He feels jealousy, bitterness. He becomes the shadow form of the sidekick, yeah. which I call the henchman. The sidekick, but bent on um, you know, a mean, nasty, or malevolent purpose. And because he becomes a henchman rather than a sidekick, he ultimately tortures and kills Amadeus Mozart in the movie. Not historically accurate, but my broader point is, when we are confronted with the fact that we're not the Sherlock, we're not the Mozart, we're not the Batman, heck, we may not even be the Robin. When we are surrounded by and see true greatness, Watson gives us the true template of how to handle that as a secure, confident human being that just wants to celebrate that there is genius in the world and realize that I will sacrifice being the hero of my own story just to set up and be a piece of this other person's story. Yeah, and to have a friend. It's the person who recognizes a great leader and decides, I'm just going to help them. The uh, Instead of actually wanting to be the great leader themselves. Imagine any great U.S. president. Imagine the person who just wrote down the letters of George Washington I was just going to say that in contrast with Salieri, the other great kind of uh, pop culture reference for this is Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr in uh, in the musical Hamilton, a character, uh, one of which rises to great heights and yet is still the sidekick for someone of greater and greater heights. And then another character like Aaron Burr, who just sits and becomes disenchanted and stews and turns that anger against others. It's fascinating. Imagine being the person that had to hand Michelangelo clean paintbrushes as they painted the Sistine Chapel. And because every great person, whether in fiction or whether in reality, has had people that have supported, that have been the sidekick to that narrative and if we see greatness and that greatness that we wished it for ourselves, it turns out that fate just meant we weren't going to be great. That's okay because there's greatness in being Watson. Watson is great and is a great friend. He is a great doctor. He is a great companion and a great chronicler of a greater man. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes. And that's okay. There's a line where Lestrade uh, is talking to Watson and Watson asks, why do you still uh, even associate with him? And Lestrade says, well, because Sherlock Holmes is a great man. And one day, maybe if we're lucky, 
he may even be a good one. And I think that sets up yeah. the dynamic of why Watson. Watson is there to help Sherlock become a good man. And in order to balance out a great man, you need a good one to help prop them up. And Watson is the good man to Sherlock's greatness. But it reminds us that good is as aspirational as great. I think coming back to this pilot with this same theme in mind of, uh, of standing on others' shoulders or of, of being at peace with your circumstances and with this shadow form of the sidekick, I want to talk a little bit about the villain of this piece, the cab driver. Ah, oh, let's do it because he's so good. So I mean, for a murdering villain, he's he's a good he, character. He <laughs> plays a really immensely important role in the themes of this story. Um, this uh, this mystery unravels, and the uh, the suicides are revealed to have been caused by a particular serial killer who forces people to kill themselves, or sets up the conditions for people to kill themselves. And this man is a cab driver who ends up picking up Sherlock Holmes. He has a quote where he says, no one ever thinks about the cabbie. You're invisible, just the back of a head. So the villain of this piece signals to us the message that the people who are sometimes invisible, unsung members of our society, are sometimes the most significant. They can determine the way your life turns out, whether you see them or not. This character who passes totally unseen is hunting all of the time and results in the deaths of several innocent people. That's such a good point. I guess, can I share another quote? I didn't, hopefully yeah, didn't stop please. you. This is something where Sherlock and Watson, they, they think they're close. They think they have talked to the killer through the dead woman's phone. They go to a restaurant and they're watching. And Sherlock says something. He says, the fragility of genius is that it always needs an audience. Yeah. In about describing what he thinks will be the mistakes the serial killer makes because the serial killer wants to be recognized. They're going to want the credit for it. Classic but, serial killer move. But in a other way, and that is true of this, of the cabbie. Yeah. Sherlock is also describing his major need yes. and his theme throughout this, which is that he needs a Watson. You know, he knows he's great, right? He knows that, but as you've mentioned and laid out, he's insecure, he's weak in some ways where others are stronger, and having Watson reaffirm his greatness helps fill that need. It also helps in another way to humanize Sherlock because if Sherlock is just going around calling himself great all the time, we're going to like him less. So yeah. we have Watson there to say, that was amazing. You are a genius. You are great. And yes, Sherlock still does that to himself too, um, plenty of times throughout this episode and the whole series. But the, the heap of praise comes from Watson, and that is also a need Sherlock has, that his genius is fragile because it needs an audience. Yeah, yeah. There's um, an amazing quote about the originals by a literary critic named William D'Andrea. He wrote that, quote, Watson serves the important function of the catalyst for Holmes's mental processes. From the writer's point of view, Doyle knew the importance of having someone to whom the detective can make enigmatic remarks, a consciousness that's privy to facts in the case without being in on the conclusions drawn from them until the proper time. Any character who performs these functions in a mystery story has come to be known as a Watson, end quote. 
So Watson becomes the universal everyman, the universal audience to genius, someone that we can all uh, relate to in the fact that he is always the one who's being bounced off of, the one who offers the praise rather than the one who receives it, uh, and we can find something to admire in that. Also in this pilot, in the climactic final scenes, the cab driver, the killer, takes Sherlock to a remote location in order to uh, perform his little ritual of hopefully causing him to kill himself. And he takes Sherlock to uh, a college, like a, a medical college. And it's super significant that as they pull up, we see an establishing shot of two identical buildings that are completely vacant at this time of night. They walk into one of the buildings and sit down in an empty classroom, and then the killer offers Sherlock two identical pill bottles, each containing an identical pill, one of which he says is the poison and one is a placebo. And then he goes off to explain his kind of master plan, explains very significantly that he has a sponsor, that he is not doing it on his own, he's being paid, and that the money is going to his kids. But what I wanted to hone in on is this idea of duality and chance. In this climactic scene, Sherlock is presented with a pill that will kill him and a pill that will make him just fine. And he determines that this killer's total dastardly plan is just up to chance. It's just a 50-50. At the same time, Watson is rushing to try and save his new friend. He comes up and sees the exact same establishing shot as us, two identical vacant buildings. And he summons his courage, and he chooses one and rushes in, ready for combat. Both characters are facing a, a, a dual, identical uh, test of chance where they have to pick one thing and hope it's the right one. And one of them, in Sherlock, is like, this is awesome. I get to prove how clever I am, no matter how close it brings him to the brink of death. The other one, Watson, rushes into this building and it turns out to be the wrong one. And yet still, he shows this incredible feat of strength, courage, steady hand, and fortitude. But I think this image, this symbol of chance and the symbol of dualism and two identical things that are so diametrically opposed, also goes to show us something in that same thematic family where you could have two identical babies born and have two completely different lives happen to them because of the, the chance things that are thrown their way. Our circumstances are not always in our control. Often the things that we think we are responsible for are actually up to chance. And one of us might end up an epic hero on epic adventures, and one of us might end up a sidekick. And there's something in finding peace in chance, finding peace in the fact that the chips are going to fall where they may, that lends to Watson becoming such a comfortable character in the place that he is. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. That is a really interesting way to look at that ending, you know, I would add another layer on top of it, too, if you'll permit me. When we think of the cab driver and we think of 
chance, the 50-50 game. Yeah. In reality, the cab driver has rigged it. Yeah. He has and he has explained his process to Sherlock and by doing so explains it to us that he is like Sherlock, a genius. He can see people and read them in a similar way that Sherlock can. And he says that this is a game of chess with one move where he pushes one of the bottles forward. Yeah. And he is apparently able to deduce from the person which one that person is going to choose. And because of that, when he makes that one move, he seals it. He controls it. It actually isn't chance to him. Right. At least that's the way he views it. Maybe he is just completely lucky, did it four times and won four times. Maybe he is a genius. We don't really get any evidence of it. But what we do see is Sherlock's response. And Sherlock's response is ultimately, at first, not to play. Right. He tempts him with the gun and says, nope, I'll take the gun. Because what happens if the person doesn't want to take a pill? Well, the cabbie has a pistol. But Sherlock can deduce that it's a fake one. So he says, no, you'll have to shoot me, but it's fake. And then afterwards, once Sherlock understands his motives, once Sherlock gets what he wants out of him, his next move to not play is like, I'm going to get up and walk away. The cab driver tempts him back by just saying, but did you pick the right one? Come on, Sherlock. You want to know if you picked the poison or not. And when the cab driver gets shot, Sherlock's, first question to him was, did I pick right? Did I beat you? And in that, we see that Sherlock's need to play the game, Sherlock's need to risk his life, as you say, to prove how clever is a major, major liability and weakness. Yeah, it's a weakness and an addiction to uh, to his own cleverness, an addiction to a sort of narcissistic outlook and a need to be right but what we get in this scene, too, in the deprivation of that, in the fact that Watson sharpshoots the sky through two windows, this perfect shot that he gets, is that Watson is the kind of friend who will shoot to kill even if it takes the fun out of your friend's game. He's the kind of person who will intervene when his friend is clearly self-destructing. And this sets up later seasons of the show when we'll watch... Sherlock, you know, go deeper into his drug addiction and Watson will be the friend who is there to shake you out of it, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's not fun. And that shows us Watson's great strengths in the face of Sherlock's greatest weakness. So, and back to your theme about chance. Yeah. What these two characters, Sherlock and the cab driver, both highly functioning sociopaths in their own way, they're trying to wrap their hands around the chaos of the universe and get some control back. Playing the game is their way to minimize the chance. Yeah. It's a way to control the chance. And if I can play the game... To, to defeat chance, yeah. Be better than anyone, if I can rig it so that I know that I'm clever enough to win every time, it'd be like playing a really challenging video game but lowering the difficulty so that you can steam right through it. Yeah. Making sure that you can win. Controlling the variables that make it difficult. And then, um, you know, so in that, we have juxtaposed next to that, we do still have Watson. And Watson only plays the game of chance when he thinks his friend's life is on the line. Mm. That's what motivates him, is to actually help Sherlock. 
He has no real interest in the game at this point. It's more about protecting his friend. Though he is enticed. He is a player. He does want to be there. You know, he realizes that what Sherlock is doing is romantic and it is powerful and it's enticing. But at the end of the day, he doesn't need to control the chaos. Yeah. You know, um, which then brings me to my next point, if you'll permit me. Yeah, please. About the cab driver. The cab driver is very much the shadow form of the sidekick. Yes. He is Moriarty's henchman. Yes. He, in Moriarty, a superior player of the game, uses this man as a pawn in a broader game against Sherlock involving murder and death, and he takes advantages of the weaknesses of the cab driver and uses him as a pawn. And the cab driver is only, um, you know, willing to do this because he is suffering from the conditions of the shadow sidekick, the henchman, the wanting to, to do where the, the sidekick wants to pick up life. The henchman is there to knock it down Yeah, where the sidekick is there to offer a moral compass. The henchman is ready to smash the compass when the villain needs someone that they can count on to do the dirtiest job possible, they go to the henchman. And whereas the hero uh, needs the dirtiest job possible to get them back on the right track, there is the sidekick. And that is what I think the interesting part of the cab driver is that he is, in many ways, the opposite Watson. Yeah. And also enticed by Holmes. Yeah. Completely into Holmes and really enjoying every aspect that he gets to spend with Holmes, but doing it in the shadow form. Yeah, and opposite to Watson in the fact that he sees another genius and wants to beat it and needs to outdo it, where Watson finds peace in his station and says, I may not be as great as uh, as Sherlock Holmes, but I am good in my own. This cabbie is not comfortable with where he is. He thinks that he is the great genius and that he can beat Sherlock Holmes, when in reality, he is just doing the bidding of someone who is greater than him on the villain side. So that's a perfect point, that he's got the Salieri complex where Watson is is an admirable character because he is comfortable with who he is. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. That's fascinating. Um, I also think about other great sidekicks who kind of work in this model. And I, I can't mention sidekicks without thinking of Samwise Gamgee. He's one of my favorite sidekicks of all time. And he's a character who serves the protagonist Frodo, picks him up when he's down. He's much more rustic in his origins. And so he has a lot of parallels to the kind of Watson figure. Maybe he's a little less initially brave, but he'll do anything for his master. But when Frodo's reward is to sail off into, like, heaven, basically, Sam gets rewarded with a wedding to the woman he loves, a beautiful family, and a promise that he's going to live out the rest of his life in the Shire, which is the place he loves more than anything. So there's this, uh, this pattern that you see with great sidekicks where that greatness, that aspirationalness to the hero who sails off into the sunset, into, into paradise, or, you know, who becomes a god or is is the superhero who gets statues built of them. Those are, are really enticing, exciting rewards to look at. But when we look at our own lives, when we internalize the sidekick and say, I did the best that I could and maybe I wasn't a superstar, but 
I, you know, found love and I have a family and I, you know, care about people in my circle or I'm fulfilled in my work. Isn't that such a great reward? And I, I look at, at Watson as a great, uh, great template for this. Um, he gets to find happiness with Mary and that happiness isn't always in every iteration everlasting, but he gets to find happiness and a family and he gets to find a true friend in Sherlock and he gets to find a true peace with his past in the war because it's made him the man that he is now. So I think he's such an incredible and aspirational figure to look at within this story because he provides such a different template than Holmes and someone that we can truly be is universal. Yeah. I mean, in particular in the BBC version, like Sherlock is in a dark self-destructive path. And yeah. if it wasn't for Watson, he would completely self-destruct. Yeah. Whereas Watson is the only one that has a chance of living a quote unquote, healthy, happy, normal life. And because of that, we can all identify with Watson because those are more like the lives we get to live because we're not Sherlock Holmes is. And, um, it ultimately tells us the lesson that, you know, it's okay to be normal. That we don't have to punish ourselves for we, playing second fiddle. If we don't all, none of us, most of us don't get to become great Sherlock Holmeses. Most of us don't become the star baseball player for the Philadelphia Phillies. You, you could know. still do it. No, probably can't. <laughs> <laughs> but most of us don't get to become Tony Starks and Iron Man's. You know, but we can be John Watson's. Yeah. You know, and that is the thing that I think I really like about the 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 great sidekicks is that they are the normal intro point for all of us regular people. And oftentimes we are geared as Americans in a neoliberal fashion that says the individual will rule society and Go get your, you can get whatever you want, whatever dreams that are out there, whatever hopes, whatever desires. And as you settle into life, you realize that that's really not an accurate depiction on how we get to live. We really don't control everything. We really can't always be heroes. Most of us aren't exceptional. You know, most of us are just normal people like myself. You're exceptional, Laurel, but me, oh. you know, I'm just a regular man, you know, and so. Watson is that template of how to just be a regular good person. And when you see greatness, when you are finally able to see a true genius or master at play, don't be a Salieri. Don't be a Salieri. I want to finish with a few fun facts that I think actually give us uh, some real, some real joy at the end of this conversation. Um, and that's to look at Watson and some famous Watsons throughout time. We obviously have Dr. Watson, who's been portrayed hundreds of times. But we also have the very first words that were ever spoken over a telephone. Those words were, Watson, come here, I need you. Spoken by Alexander Graham Bell to his assistant, Watson, who was in the next room. We have Dr. Watson, the name of Microsoft's debugging program for its computers. We have... Watson, the name of the computer system created by IBM to answer Jeopardy questions. The machine actually won the million dollar prize in Jeopardy and was one of the first kind of artificial intelligence um, prototypes that the world was introduced to. 
And while these are not all connected by one particular theme or by the story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, there's something so universal in the name Watson, something so everyman, something so ordinary that sometimes gets on jeopardy and wins a million dollars. There's something about the ordinary that here has been recognized universally as exceptional. That's awesome. And until next time, guys, be kind. Elementary. Elementary.